0: Professor Kooplin, how are we doing this morning?
1: I'm good. How are you,
0: Ronan? You know, doing just fine. Got my. uh, This is the earliest I've ever done a podcast. It's a little early. I'm trying to, you know, I'll probably get my energy like halfway through, you know, when I'm done my first cup of coffee this morning. So, uh, you know, it's just the typical life of a college kid, right? Wake up really early, go to that first class and you're half asleep. So it's kind of the same with this podcast. And, you know, you gain that energy halfway through. I'm sure you see it with all your students and, you know the morning class.
1: Yeah. And with faculty and it being such a <laughs> cold day outside where nobody wants to get out of bed because it's, I don't know what the temperature is, but there is snow everywhere. So <laughs> yeah,
0: no, when, whenever it it there's harder. snow outside or there's raining, but yep. no one ever wants to do anything. It's just, no, definitely not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's,
0: it's not even fun. So professor Kukwun, uh, one question that I, like, I want to kick this off with is when did you start in the marketing world?
1: So, that's an interesting question, because when I was a child, one of the things I would always do is make up commercials. And I don't know why, but my friends and I would always act out commercials. Mm. So, I know your question really is about, um, you know, when I became a person interested in marketing and working in the marketing world. But in reality, I think it really started young. And a lot of that had to do with growing up in an immigrant household, where I felt like brands and products... And the advertising of the day was what connected me to my friends on the playground. My parents spoke Chinese. I brought really odd lunches to school where kids would gather around and go, oh, what is that? You know, I didn't just have the standard tuna fish sandwich and the bag of Cheetos and things like that. And so I think that advertising and marketing was something that really helped me connect with other kids. You know, we'd sing the um, Coca-Cola jingle. I'd like to teach the world to sing, all those things on the playground. And so it really drove a passion, I think, in some ways for popular culture and marketing. And so when I went to my undergraduate program at Berkeley, I really wanted to study um, marketing and advertising. So I ended up doing that as as an undergraduate. And in fact, I wrote my entrance essay on that Coca-Cola jingle to start with. Um, And then I ended up working in advertising in public relations. I really loved it. And then I went to grad school um, and got my master's and my PhD all in marketing (laughs) and then came to Penn State. And so that was sort of my path.
0: It's really interesting how like at a young age that you don't even realize it at the point of like so much what you're doing. Then, and then it all kind of like comes full circle now. It's like, maybe I was just born to be, you know, a marketing professor and work in the industry because, you know, at a young age, even I was drawn to these things that some weren't even paying attention to, but I picked up on at a young age. Now we're doing, you know, now we're doing something like that. And that's funny how life kind of, you know, moves in a, comes full circle and, you know, that kind of case. But um, something else that is really interesting in the marketing world today is just the whole thing of everything's coming with the internet. And there's so many different ways that people are getting involved with or without a college degree.
1: Mm -hmm. That's true. Um, So that's something that has changed a lot. I mean, I went through quite a rigorous program. You know, you go from a bachelor's to a master's and a PhD, and you're looking at all different facets of marketing and consumer behavior. Um, And I think for me, when I first started teaching, we would look at something called integrated marketing communications. And so it's how you communicate with the customer. And the biggest box was advertising. And I spent most of the time back in 1999 teaching about advertising, prints, billboards, commercials. And we talked about how it was top down from the company. Um, and we looked at direct marketing and sales promotion and public relations. and But those were all things controlled by the company. So if you're Heinz Ketchup, you have an ad agency that creates all of that content for you, or you have a firm that creates all that content for you. And slowly, I would say maybe 10 years into my teaching, all of a sudden, the new edition of the textbook had this box called interactive marketing. And inter- interactive marketing um, was all about... Um, having customers sort of develop relationships with customers and they respond to what's happening in, in your marketing. So maybe they would see a kiosk they would go by and the kiosk would kind of speak to the person and people would interact with the kiosk. They'd push a button and the kiosk would respond. And that was sort of more interactive. But then we, a couple of years after that, interactive marketing became digital marketing. And so, you know, digital marketing is kind of what you were asking about, which is, Uh, we've got apps, we have websites, we have um, social media, which now we have social media. So I've seen this evolution go from something that was very controlled by the marketer to something that is now controlled by companies, uh, sorry, now controlled by um, consumers. But even with that, like that's gone down all different avenues. So you have the world of influencers and they can help determine success of products. Um, You have brand ambassadors who get hired by companies who represent the brand. And I'm sure a lot of students work as brand ambassadors because it's a, you know, it's a great job to have, I think, where you represent the brand and you highlight the brand on your social media and all of that. But those were the kinds of things that I never saw in my first few years teaching, let alone, you know, in my education. And all of a sudden you have these people who are becoming really proficient at marketing. It actually makes my job a lot easier. I have to say, because I used to talk about how marketing is inherent within us. So when I first started teaching marketing 301, you know, I would stand in, um, in a forum. And I can remember saying to students, you can relate to Facebook, which was new at the time. And when you first went on Facebook, you were in high school. So this is a few years back when it, that's how it was. And it was everybody was a friend collector. They had friends on Facebook. And um, I said, you understand marketing inherently because you know that the content you put on there is saying something about you, the photos, what you say, all of that representation. And all of a sudden, when your mom and your grandma and your aunt and uncle all join Facebook and they're your friends, you change what you say. So we inherently understand this idea that we are marketing ourselves, that we have a different target segment, so We have different things we want to highlight and say. And that's a lot of what marketing is. And like you, even fast forward now to now, I mean, people are making brands of themselves. I mean, you're making. I mean, what you're doing is incredible to me. You're a prime example of this of somebody who has figured out here's a niche. People love this idea of. I love your keep on keeping on. I mean, it's something that is so true to right now, and so you understand that there's a need and there's an audience for that, and a lot of us want to feel that, and you're bringing us together around it. So I feel as though there's way more practicing of marketing now than ever before because there are the tools to do so.
0: Well, yeah, no, I I love that what you're saying about the whole, it's been a huge evolution of the whole marketing world over the past, you know, 20 years. Like I've been doing, you know, my research before this podcast about how much it's changed from, you know, 1990 to 2000, the 2000 to 2010 and, and so on and so on. Yeah. And the thing that I found very interesting is just the use of the internet and how it mm-hmm. wasn't a thing 20 years ago, even nope. though it was there. And like, I remember, um, you know, the whole Mark Cuban his one of his first companies was radio TV, like on radio.com or whatever. Mm-hmm. I forget exactly the name of what it was, but I was thinking to myself, I'm like, I wonder if he had like ads or something on there. And it was like, he, he didn't know. And just, it was basically the broadcasting people would pay for the subscription and so on and so on. And I thought it was really interesting because nowadays you couldn't not get away with seeing 15 ads on the screen before going into that next (laughs) game or whatever it may be. And the cool thing about, you know, you were talking about Facebook in general and the whole Facebook advertising Mm -hmm. as well and how that's just such a prevalent thing nowadays. And there's formulas and algorithms into Mm -hmm. everything that you, Mm -hmm. uh, that you do and how you can, you know, put your product in the front of people that want looked up this, this, and this. And, you know, now you have a better chance of having someone to buy the product, which didn't occur 10, 20 years ago. And now that we're in this, you know, whole age of society that everyone's on a screen that it's funny how you don't see as many big companies doing billboards or, you know, things in that nature, you know, advertising on whatever it may be, the cars, you know, physical things because mm-hmm. everything, every, it, it's not worth their money nowadays. I'd rather, you know, put it on a screen and have people look at it. And it's just, it's the way the, it's yeah. the, way the culture is. If you're always on a screen, why not throw my content and my advertisements and my products on that screen? So then it, business game. Now I've, now my customers have, or my potential customers have a chance of becoming my actual customers.
1: Yeah, so you raise a couple of really interesting points there. Um, so one is, I can remember when I was teaching Marketing 301. So this is the principles of marketing course for, for whoever hasn't taken that course. Um, and I remember many years ago, must be about a dozen years ago, when Facebook was still, maybe more, as I think about it, when Facebook was still fairly young, Um, So more than that, sorry. Uh, I remember doing a SWOT analysis in my class on Facebook. I had shown a video on Facebook and its success and Mark Zuckerberg and all of that. And I remember asking students to think, well, what are the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? And it was brought up at the time that Facebook did not have external advertising. And they felt as though this was a great revenue stream for the company, but that it would change its meaning that it is no longer just this entity, which you felt like was really organic and you know, a population of young people having a voice and communicating with each other, but it suddenly becomes something where corporate entities can come in. And now, as you were saying, you know, that's all changed. You go on any kind of social media and it's just ads everywhere that are kind of following you around. The other thing you brought up that I thought was really interesting is I can remember lecturing a few years ago, one of my very last lectures, Um, I think in my advertising class, and we were talking about the extent to which advertising can expand. And that was, I think, the heyday of things like you get on an airplane, you open up the the tray, and there's an ad on the tray. Or you go to the grocery store, and there were ads um, when you're checking out at the conveyor belt. There were ads there. There were ads on the sticks. There were ads on the little I don't know, the conveyor belt itself. There were ads on the floor. It was where ads were everywhere. And we talked about what are the implications for that? How far can this go? What are the effects on the consumer? But I love that you bring up this point that now that we have everything following us in this little brick that we're carrying around with us all the time, in some ways, we probably don't need that everywhere around us, right? The prediction was earlier that you would have that um, minority report situation. Like Tom Cruise walks into the gap. This is in the movie. And they would say, you know, welcome. And they'd say his name. Would you like another pair of those size X, um, you know, khakis that you bought last time? Yeah. So it was one of those where the prediction was you would walk in and the machine would talk to you and offer you a product. But if you think about it, Well, that makes a lot of sense, but they can do it much more easily just on your phone because we get little pings, right? You walk into a place it says, ping, you've now now got a coupon for this thing or or whatever because they know exactly where you are based on GPS. And so I find the evolution fascinating that it doesn't have to be in public space, uh, which is what I talked about a few years ago. It was all about you walk around, billboards are talking to you individually. You know, you're at the grocery store, you see the ads. So all these kinds of things, but, but like, you're right. A lot of it is just right there. It's in your pocket. <laughs> so it doesn't have to surround you and it doesn't in that sense have to clutter your physical space, but it can cl- clutter your digital space for sure. Oh, hundred percent. And the
0: thing yeah. that you know technology is great at, and I, I bring the example of uh TikTok up a lot because I know the I know kind of how the algorithm works a little bit more than Instagram or anything else. Yep. But in the whole thing that I love TikTok's advertising statement, mm-hmm. and it says, "TikTok, get lost in it." I'm like, "Wow!" Oh like, my powerful. gosh!
1: That's and that's
0: so smart. And I'm understanding why because you can spend hour. Like I, I talked about this on like a Quick Shots episode, like ten minute podcast series that I have, and basically they have an algorithm that keep throwing content at you that is related to you know the last thing that you saw, and if you like and interact with certain things they'll keep putting it right in front of your face and as a viewer if you keep seeing things that you're like it's way harder to swipe up out of the app or close the application and go do something else and that's where yeah. they get you and that's amazing to me how they figured out how you know a 60 second or 60 second or less video clip yeah. can gain this much traction in you know today's viewership which is you know, um, most likely their general um customer consumer would be, you know, kids my age between mm-hmm. twenty five and under, and now that you have such a short attention span that they, they can get you through these, you know, short videos where oh, you can learn a whole thing. And I think it's really interesting how you know the whole age of. YouTube and TikTok and, you know, YouTube University mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. changed so many people's minds about, totally. you know, the college programs, going to, hu- like, even graduating oh, yeah. high school. Yeah. More and more people are not finishing high school because they say, hey, I can learn this online. And if if you can, hey, kudos to you, man. And you might have a great career. And, you know, that is what it is. But um, backtracking a little bit. Just being able to have this access of information at your fingertips, no matter where you are, is very it's interesting. Amazing. And so amazing. what all these companies are doing really well is knowing, is telling you that they have, you know, you can do all of this at your fingertips.
1: Yeah. So I know you're, you're talking about it a little bit from the, from the perspective of the consumer becoming the marketer, but you made me think about how Netflix... There are 33 million versions of it because, and it's. I think it's a good parallel example to what you're talking about because uh, Netflix has discovered that if you watch 15 hours of programming a month, you are more. You are very likely. Um, it's like a minuscule chance that you'll actually drop your subscription, and if you drop under five hours per month, then you're likely to. Uh, It's like a 97% drop rate or something like that. So they know that they have to keep you engaged and interested. And I was thinking about this because when you said you're watching TikTok videos, and a lot of them are really short, right? But they're very good at feeding you exactly what they think you're interested in because they have studied exactly what you've watched before. They feed you the same thing. And you know what? It's like donating your change. It's, you're sitting there getting ready for bed and, oh, this, this video is only, you know, it's not very long. It's under a minute or this one's under two minutes or something like that. You think that's not very long, but then, you know, an hour and a half later, you've watched, they've stacked up, right? You've watched many of them because you haven't realized you keep donating your change in that sense. And I think Netflix has kind of done the same thing as they've realized that the currency is getting you to stay so just stay for a couple minutes. So we're going to loop the next show immediately when the last one has finished, you know, partway through the credits so that you're brought in and yes, just watch the opening, just watch a few seconds and see if you want to come back next time to watch it. But in fact, what happens is you don't just donate your change. You give them like 10 bucks because you're kind of staying there then for the next hour to watch the next show and then the one after that. And so, you know, they've come up with formulas. And so I think what's happened in all of these worlds is that you have this big data, which is able to calculate exactly what people are interested in and keep generating this information for you. And so it benefit. I mean, in some ways it benefits these companies big time. So if you're Netflix, your YouTube, your TikTok, et cetera, but also the people who are creating the content. So going back to your point, right? And so not just the person who... Uh, you know, created Bridgerton or a TV series, but also the user who is on TikTok, who has created a series of videos that they want people to watch. If you can jump on that bandwagon and be something that becomes at the forefront of people's minds, whether it's because you have figured out the right way to convey your information, the anything to the color scheme, to the, you know, the music choice, all those kinds of things. If they're able to to like, if they're able to find your version of keywords, right, that you've put at the forefront that are of interest right now, then you're likely to have a winning proposition. So again, going back to your point earlier is that, you know, a lot of these TikTok superstars or just, you know, average people, they're all figuring this out. What is the formula that I need to become part of that content that is constantly fed to people over time? So it it amazes me.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's really cool. And like what you were saying earlier about the age of the the influencer and the ambassador is is right now. huge, And how many people and many companies are saying, hey, we don't need these big time advertisements that cost millions upon millions of dollars. We'd rather pay you know, X amount of dollars. I think like David Dobrik's YouTube channel is a very good example of mm. how, you know, four minutes and 20 seconds long, 21 seconds long for every single one of his videos. And somehow, some way he always fits in an ad. And though it might be 13 seconds of the video, that makes a strong, um. what's the word I'm looking for? Influence on the viewer. And then they're like, oh maybe i should you know go do this and i think the reason it it is is because so nowadays it's not the whole i'm as a business person i'm looking up to like the big corporate ladder i want to look up to the ceos and mm-hmm. but now today you're watching everyone that you see and you know kids my age and younger they're not watching cable television anymore they're watching no. YouTube all the time because Penn State I remember that they cut I was like trying to stream a game on the TV and like hook up the cable and I like read online it's like they cut cable I'm like that is the most (gasps) genius idea I've ever heard in my entire life because I mean why would they spend money for it when no one's watching it and that like that was the first realization to say like no that that makes sense because I can't imagine how many people actually use it on a day-to-day basis because now everything is streamed On the internet. And what's cool about, you know, these internet ads and everything else is that they are able to get more data because we're in a data driven society, especially Mm -hmm. in companies. Absolutely. And with that data, they're able to make better decisions. And when you can have more viewership. Because it's a, it's way harder to track how many people tune into your episodes on TV than, you know, say YouTube, because the views are right in front of your face. It's mm-hmm. right in front of everyone's face. The data
1: is incredible. Yes.
0: And what I think that like all these companies do really well is advertise the views. Because if something has a lot of views mm. as a consumer, I'm drawn to go check it out. And it might not seem seem like it, but it's almost a human inclination of saying, well everyone else watched it. I should probably watch it too. It's the whole like he jumps off a bridge I'm gonna jump off a bridge yeah. too kind of society uh mentality and that's where I think marketing is very interesting in that sense because when you're marketing to someone you're not only trying to get that person you're trying to get that person's friends if you have a good enough ad or yeah you know whatever it may be that they're gonna go or product in general you're gonna they're going to tell their friends about it. And then their friends and, you know, you keep going down the line and that's where, you know, this whole buildup in your buildup of consumers and customers get bigger by just a cheaper alternative than, you know, the, I, I I shouldn't even say it's an alternative nowadays because it's kind of the norm more or less of now putting ads on YouTube or putting ads on TikTok Mm -hmm. or whatever it Mm -hmm. may be. And now you're able to, channel your viewership.
1: No, you're right. I think the metrics are much easier to come by, as you were saying. And then just this idea of everything being uh, socially driven. So it's like crowdsourcing. Like I remember in the early days in classes defining this term called crowdsourcing, which is that you could put something out there and you can see what the world says about it and see if they can solve the problem. Like apparently a lot of things like um, you know, resolving issues that have to do with, with cancer and, and so on. You can put it out as a gamified question to people, and you can have crowds come together and try to resolve this and compete with one another to resolve it. And it really makes you realize the power of humanity in that sense. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I guess the word humanity might be a bit grandiose for something like YouTube, <laughs> but you know, it's a representation of of your right. You know, the the number of likes becomes the currency for popularity and you have a voice and you can keep going. And I'm sure it's very relatable on any kind of social media. You know, if you get enough likes, you kind of feel really good about it and you think I'm going to post more like that. So you as an individual do that. But if you post something and not very many people like it, you kind of go, oh, you know, maybe I need to change it next time. Maybe there was something wrong with the... I don't know, the messaging or the way I filtered the photo or, you know, something like that. And so I think we all end up doing the same. And we recognize that that those the number of eyeballs is extremely important. And companies totally realize that too.
0: Oh, yeah. And now yeah. I can see it's everything's presented in a way that these companies can get the information. That's what I was saying before, like all these companies yeah. can get the information instantly and it's not like they have to go deep into their metrics or whatever it may be ask the person which is another phone call on another phone call and then like what are you doing with your data analysis whatever it may be and now everything's presented at you and saying like hey you got this many views let's throw some money at you and see like what you can do with this ad and how many view, how many customers we're gonna gain from it and that's that's the beauty of today's society and also, you know, the, there's always a yin yang to everything, right? Mm-hmm. So, when you're, you know, when you're a company and doing constant ads on YouTube and you're not doing commercials as much, they're losing a different part of your your viewership. Because I know that, like my grandparents and my parents, like they're not very, you know, sure, yeah, they're not into the whole, you know, YouTube thing so much. They like mm-hmm. watching, you know, regular television. So it, when you're a company making these decisions. Nowadays I'm seeing ads that on YouTube are more towards me rather than right. you know, a Geico commercial or whatever, a what all state insurance. Because to those companies, they're not gonna gain me as a as a customer because I don't like I'm I'm not well aware of my insurance. I'm still a young kid. But to yeah. parents it is
1: yeah, it's heavily segmented. so um so for example, I you know my family, we sit around and we do watch certain programs at night, and they are on demand. um but we tend to watch we go through TV series. So I think we were talking uh, before we began about the office, and we're going through other sitcoms and so on. And it's really interesting to me because we do this every night how you see the same companies advertise over and over again in this. It's it's a fairly traditional context, even though on-demand is not traditional. So we'll always see Jake from State Farm. We'll always see a bunch of pharmaceutical ads, um, Capital One. So these are the companies that we see all the time. And yet we would probably see either different versions of those ads online for the younger target audience or just different products altogether. So they're really smart in the way they segment it. Um, I get, you know, when I first started teaching, one of the exercises I would give students is choose three TV channels that are very different from one another. So you could choose, you know, NBC and um, CNN and um, you know the phishing channel or something like that, right? And I would say document what commercials you see during that time period. And it's a great exercise because what you see is traditional TV is really segmented. If you're watching certain programming at a certain time, they know that they're speaking to people who are senior citizens, 60 and older, or they're speaking to teenagers who are, um, you know, uh, 14 to 19 or something like that. But now you have this added layer of then you go to even a different medium, which is really trying to appeal to a different target audience. Um, and within that, there's going to be segmentation according to programming. I do have to ask you, have you seen the wen- latest with Wendy's and Twitter? No. So, when, so you know, how Wendy's has developed this whole personality for itself. Yeah. So apparently Wendy's is starting to egg on the public and asking them to, uh, oh, I'm forgetting what their latest prompt was, but they're basically like taunting the public to send them a tweet. And for every tweet that the public sends, they send back something really snarky. So so there was something about like, uh, you know, um, Velveeta saying something. Oh, I wish I could remember the exact quotes. But, you know, what I recall is that um, there's a lot of bashing of Wendy's food. So Wendy's will come back and they'll bash their competition, like, you know, let's say something to Velveeta about their cheese being fake and all of this. But, you know, the, the thing is like, who, who is on Twitter? And who is that audience for? Who appreciates that kind of that humor, right? So a lot of the research shows that if you're male, if you're educated, if you are younger, you will tend to appreciate A lot of that, you will tend to buy into companies who do that because you see that they're sort of speaking a language that is light and sarcastic, and that's really appealing to that particular age group. Um, And so for Wendy's, I think they're kind of smart because they realize that that is probably a large part of who eats their food. But this is also giving them opportunities for public relations where they're starting to realize that, oh, you know, um, people are just talking about it. It's creating buzz. So even if nobody, if if certain people never eat at Wendy's, they're talking to their friends about it and saying how funny it is because it's established a, a personality for this particular brand.
0: And I think that something that's really cool about marketing in general is it's not like history or you know mathematics where you need to, you know, there's this set-based thing that you need to know and that's it, and you're pretty much going to be halfway decent with the subject throughout your life, whether anything else happens. You'll get updated once every 10 years. The world of marketing changes like every single day, every single minute of the day, and that's where you always are learning about the subject, whether you like it or not. And I was just talking to the last podcast that I I did was with my broadcasting um, teacher from high school, Merge, and she was saying that I'm not you know, I'm not really in the broadcasting. I'm into visual literacy. And I remember Ooh. I remember we were talking in in your class about the supermarket thing. And she brought the same yeah. thing up and I was like, you know, I I remember this from my marketing class and how that it's it's so everything's thrown at you and if you don't realize it you're going to fall into the trap, like having you know the sugary cereals on the bottom rather than the top, because who's going to buy the sugary cereals, the little mm. kids and like thing things in that nature. You have to walk through, you know, the candy aisle in order to get to, you know, the organic food section. Yep, so it's organized. You get, yeah. And that's what I thought was really interesting and how this is forever changing, how you can pay 5,000 more dollars if, you know, I can put my whatever my peanuts in the best place in the supermarket and people are going to say like what's the best place in the supermarket Mm -hmm. and there's there's numbers behind it which i thought was amazing
1: yeah i mean there are eye cameras that monitor where people's eyeballs look and apparently just below eye level is the most profitable for companies and uh, they've also recognized, you know, a lot of basic cognitive research says that we can only pay attention in our short-term memory to seven plus or minus two items at a time. So that is ridiculous. You know, if you are one product on a shelf, maybe you have like four facings of your product on a shelf and somebody doesn't necessarily have this on their shopping list. You know, you're, the company is actively thinking, how do we make sure that our product is in the right place so that people are seeing it that's just below eye level, which is the most expensive? Or where are we putting it in a store where people will pass by? And if it's an impulse purchase type product, like candy, right? Is it something that we're going to put in a location where people are going to walk right by it and what's around it, right? All those kinds of things, because there is so, there's so little that we're able to pay attention to at once, And so you'll see companies investing in things like, you know, extra signage that point to where something is. Um, Kind of a a related story to this. Uh, The Energizer bunny has been one of the most successful personality symbol icons in marketing history. Do you know the Energizer bunny?
0: The the one with the
1: drum? Uh, Yes. So it's it's this pink bunny. Sometimes it's wearing sunglasses and it's always, you know, it just keeps going and going and going is the thing. And their commercials were really popular, probably when you were really small. (laughs) But it was something that everybody knew, everybody talked about, and it would disrupt other commercials. So it would look like another commercial was happening, and the Energizer bunny would just start marching, sort of like go through the bottom of the screen because it's the claim that it keeps going and going. And in the store uh, context, though, people often got confused and thought that it was Duracell that ran those commercials. So even though somebody might actively go in and say, oh, we ran out of batteries, we need to go in and buy them, they're looking at the shelf and they would immediately grab Duracell instead of Energizer because Duracell was the market leader at the time. And being the market leader means that you often will take share when people get confused. And so they had to actively create displays that had the Energizer bunny with the Energizer battery, or on the packaging, start putting the Energizer bunny on it just so that people knew that, hey, look at us, it's this one, right, that you want to buy. Not that one over there. We didn't say anything about Copper Top. We're the pink bunny and you should pay attention to us. So you know, there's a lot that's really tricky in, in that, in that you know, moment because people are spending so little time. Like when you think about your own behaviors going through a grocery store, if if you even go through a grocery store anymore uh, which a lot of people don't but but you know for people who do you think i'm running in for five items so how long will that take me at most 20 15 20 minutes you know if i have to search for them but an hour and 10 minutes later you're leaving with a basket full of stuff and it's a lot of it is because they have found these ways to appeal to you so not just finding the brand that you're interested in but exactly what you're saying like the wayfinding so the milk is in the back of the store because that's what people need, but they have to walk past everything else in order to get there, right? Or I bought the, um, I you know I bought the avocados, so why not right, right next to the avocados? We're going to put everything you need, like the mozzarella cheese and the things you need for your guacamole and the chips, right? Because we're trying to say we know you're sort of time poor, but we want you to put more in your basket. <laughs> right yeah
0: yes and that's really interesting to say and i think the whole world of covid has changed this whole factor yes. a little bit because i remember when you know i walked into walmart the other day and i was realizing that you could only go in one door and i'm thinking to myself i'm like you know that's really interesting what if i took yes. the other the other doorway and i'm walking i just i literally walk the other way and you know you're thrown into instead of the grocery section you're thrown into you know, the department store section, oh, with how all, all, the, all the bits and pieces. Yep. And I start walking and I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm walking. And what I realize is that some of the things that are presented to you on that side, the first things are, you know, little snacks. And then it goes to chocolates and then it goes to, you know, the groceries. And I'm sitting there like, you know, that makes a lot of sense because if yeah. I'm a consumer I'm going to want, like, if I need something to catch my eye first before, then I realize that, you know, maybe I need, maybe I need this or that or whatever it may be. And you really don't, but, you know, they get to you in that sense, which is really cool. Another thing that I wanted to touch on ask you about is how do you feel about uh, affiliate marketing is something that, you know, I found very interesting. I've done a little bit of research on it. I haven't personally done it myself, so I don't want to, you know, talk so much into it that like I'm know everything about it. But I want to ask you, how do you feel about this whole affiliate marketing age that's coming up and it's being advertised all over? It's like, oh, you can make a thousand dollars in a day or whatever it may be. How do you feel about the whole affiliate marketing spectrum?
1: So that's a great question. I will tell you that when I look at students' resumes, I see that so often. (laughs) It seems like a very common thing now that... yeah. Because you're talking about things like being a brand ambassador. Is that what you mean when you say affiliate marketing? Because that's what I, I think of.
0: I was talking about that in general. And I know that there's a lot of different ways to... So the one that I see a lot is that if you... I'll just use like TikTok for an example because a lot of the affiliate marketers are through there. And they say they make their video and they tap the link in my bio and you can do the same thing that I do, make you know whatever it may be. And once mm-hmm. you tap that, Link in the bio takes mm-hmm. you to another page, like a click funnel is what they call them in that website, and that program call. And when you do that, they get paid for every time that they click on that ad. But it's yeah. pretty much the brand ambassador thing yeah. as well.
1: Yeah, but just a little bit more embedded within what they're doing. It, it And it feels more sales, really, than the brand ambassador thing. I have really mixed feelings about it. Um, but I... But what I would like to do is see it play out a little bit more. Because to me, um, having taught marketing for so long and seeing it controlled by the company, to me, there is something useful about that because they are able to sort of convey a message from only their voice. But I also know that over here, we've got the consumer who has a powerful voice. And I think that that voice is important too. And I think that's one that the reason why it's become so powerful is because people want to listen to other consumers. I think the issue becomes, though, if it starts to feel deceptive. So when bloggers, for example, became a thing many years ago, they didn't have to state up front that they were being um, persuaded by companies to use their products and talk about them in the blogs. There, There was nothing that required them to state that. Um, And then legislation was passed in which they have to say, you know, so-and-so gave me product to talk about this, but this is my unbiased opinion. So there became this thing that people had to, like, state to try to, you know, say that this is not deceptive. I'm being upfront about the fact that I was given this information. Um, I think in this case, it draws a little bit of a fine line because I think it's become, from my understanding, so popular that you start to wonder what's reality (laughs) and you know, and what isn't, and that's where I start to feel a little bit uncomfortable about it. Do you really believe in this product, or are you just making a ton of money on it? Um, and I see that. I think we see this in a lot of realms, right? Whether it is being a standard brand ambassador, whether it is a person who, um, you know, I have various friends who will sell things, you know, like um, athletic wear or Pampered Chef or um, Scholastic books and things like that. And and I think if you believe in that product, and you're talking about it from the heart, um, that to me is different than if you're just trying to make a buck, because your image aligns with that particular brand. That makes me feel uncomfortable. But those kinds of things are kind of hard to to figure out, right, when you're looking at somebody.
0: So... Yeah no it's it's really it's really interesting that you say that and i think that's what you know social media and everything in general is very very deceiving because you can mm-hmm. portray something completely different on the mm-hmm. internet than what you actually are and that's that's a story for another day but going into it with you know the whole marketing aspect and the affiliate marketing aspect is everyone is obsessed nowadays and i might be to myself of I don't need a real job. I don't need this. I don't need that. Mm -hmm. Like I don't need to go on the path that everyone else should go. Like I'm Robert Frost. I'm taking the path less traveled. And that's where these companies are succeeding because when, if I'm uh, say I'm that affiliate marketing company, I'm legendary marketer and the guy has been talking about it and you buy this program for $7 and from $7, you can make X amount of money. Why when? Why wouldn't I do that? It's seven bucks. Like, how bad can it be? And what was really interesting when I signed up for the program and I I did it to learn about you know how to do Google Ads and Facebook Ads and all that, how to run the best things possible for you know your company or in case my podcast. And what I thought was really interesting is as soon as you press you know buy seven dollar buy the seven dollar program, you have fifteen other pages that come up of other deals that you can buy that you can make more money from. And every time, Uh you know, I click on one of those, the person that originally, the person that I got the link from gets paid again. And I just thought that was so intriguing how they do this. And it was kind of like, I remember you were talking about the Disney World example in class, how you go on the ride and then immediately after the ride, Uh I was trying to think of the name the other day you go from the ride and when, once you're at, once you're done the ride, you go into the gift shop. Yep. And from there, you're more inclined to buy certain things. And that's kind of what it's like on, yeah. you know, you all these halo. Different programs.
1: Yeah. Is that yeah. what it's called? Well, it's, it's similar. Like, a, you know, a halo effect is about that, you know, Positive feeling that might rub off. So, I guess there is a similarity to that. But I immediately thought of foot in the door, what you were talking about, which is you start out small. So, $7 is nothing. It's so low risk. So, you have now committed and, in some ways, become a member. And when you become a member, your identity has shifted just a little bit. So, you walk through that door, but now they're offering all these other things. Right. And so, now you're going to look at it from a slightly different lens because you have bought in and invested. And so now you're thinking, well, maybe maybe just this extra $5. It's not really a big deal, right? And so it's just like what you were saying earlier with the TikTok videos or with Netflix where it's just just one more. I'll just watch a little bit more and then an hour and a half later. So it's not unlike that where it's just constantly bringing you in a little bit further and entangling you in some kind of web. Really smart marketing. I think it's something that makes me uncomfortable, though. Uh, you know, I think being in the marketing profession, I think a lot of times people think, well, you're just trying to uh, target, right? The word target, I, I've always, I've never loved that word, but there's that sense that you're trying to hunt people down. And I know that in the principles of marketing course, I talked about the difference between hunting and gardening Right? And so to me, like marketing is really about gardening. It's about cultivating that relationship with your customer, understanding what their needs are. So like with gardening, it's you have to know what the lighting conditions, how frequently to water, whether it needs, um, you know, extra fertilizers, all sorts of things, right? You're sort of paying attention. So to me, really good marketing is cultivating that relationship and allowing that customer to grow. But a lot of what you're describing is starting to sound like that version of hunting, that we had talked about in class, which is um, when you think about sort of your stereotypes of a person just coming up to you and saying, you know, do you wanna buy this product? It's really amazing. Let me tell you why. What they're trying to do is just persuade you on something, but you're kind of sitting there going, Do I really want this? Is this good for me? Should I be doing this? Right. And customers really putting customers in that position, it makes them feel vulnerable. And just like you saying, you know, you, so you paid the $7, you start to feel vulnerable. Like, should I be doing this? Should I, I'm questioning it. And that to me starts to just not feel quite right. And, and I think things like that make me feel nervous. And I think about the word marketing and how it can be affiliated with this idea of the constant pull persuasion.
0: Um, when it's like the, me, sle- the salesman thing, you know, it being feels a like that. salesman. It can yeah. feel like
1: that to me. Um, You know, whereas you look at, you know, I don't know, you watch a Nike set of Nike commercials and you go, that is different. That is cultivating a relationship with the customer, right? It is, you've seen their ads over the years. You've understood the meaning of that brand. You get that Just Do It is all about empowering you as a customer. You see that this brand is for everybody. If you have a body, you're an athlete. And so to me, that's a different Proposition, that's relationship development over the long term. And if if people don't want to buy your product, that's fine. But you are sort of putting your best foot forward as a company saying, we get you. We get what your needs are. And we've provided a product that, you know, that that sort of aligned with those particular feelings. Um, And okay, maybe you can jump higher in our shoes. Maybe you can't. But the point is, when you lace them on, you have the confidence to feel like I'm an athlete. Right and to me that's a different proposition than kind of just like pushing products on people. That's how
0: the 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 game has changed. The game yes. has changed a lot and it it's hard to realize if you haven't been experienced to it before yeah. the whole gardening thing and now everyone is a sleazy salesman on the internet because of the way that they're presenting ads not that's just a general term not everyone is but a lot more people are going in that direction. So Professor Kooplin, something that I want to ask you is I like to call this segment, the top three. I know I didn't, you know, inform you about this before, but all right. So this is what what I'm going to ask you. Who are the top three best companies at marketing right now?
1: Oh my gosh. Okay. So I I bungled the Wendy's example earlier because I can't remember the actual tweets, but look at them up afterwards because they're so good at being snarky. I think they're brilliant in the way they have used social media and hired, you know, the person or people behind their social media to respond to consumers. I think in terms of public relations, they are totally killing it. Everybody knows about Wendy's. Everybody knows the personality of Wendy's. So whether you buy their product or not, you're talking about that particular brand. Um, I have to go with the classic Nike that I mentioned Just because like when I'm teaching, even now, when I'm teaching in a webinar format on Zoom, you know, I'm used to teaching. I I think you took the course Mm -hmm. in a webinar on Zoom, right? Because Because of the situation we're in, but I'm used to standing in Sparks or a big auditorium or something and talking to students. And when you're reading an audience and when you're polling an audience, you get a sense of sentiment. And I definitely feel like these Nike ads, even the ones that are from... 15 years ago or from your babyhood, they still resonate with the consumer today and are meaningful. So I think to me, they're also really powerful and I would put them at the forefront for sure. Um, I mean, I just have to say Amazon in general. can't beat them. There's so much, there's so much they are doing well, not just their big data and knowing what, what you might want next, but little things like you get the packaging on your doorstep and it looks like a smile with the arrow, right? From the A to the Z, which is supposed to signify we sell everything, right? Like, you know, like the rainforest kind of has everything, but you know, just the fact that you emotionally, It's a little surprise that has arrived at your door, even though you ordered it and you know what it is, right? So they're very good in some ways at um, humanizing something that really shouldn't be humanized. Because again, you're just going to a flat screen or a flat screen and you're making decisions. But they, if you you notice, they use the word you all the time. They use your name all the time. So they do all sorts of things just in kind of marketing the relationship, this cultivating the, the plant that I talked about. Um, just when you're online with them. Um, And they're experimenting with all sorts of other stuff. So if you order higher end goods, they're now experimenting with things like sending it in different packaging. So it feels special, you know, those kinds of things, which I think what a smart company to realize that they constantly have to grow and they can't just stay still.
0: I think it's really. I love the Amazon point, and they're able to market so much with the. I mean, they have a market cap that's absolutely nuts to think about, and some trillions of dollars. Yeah. But even even, you know, saying that that they're going in so many different directions at the same time that they're still able to get their point across in all these ads, and you, like you were saying, gardening the consumer rather than um, hunting for it. So this is this is my take on on the whole marketing thing. I have a, a weird top two, right? I have a classic one, Apple. Okay. Simpli- simplicity sells. Here's why: if I'm watching an Apple commercial, I remember I remember you talking about this in in your class that everything is just really blah, but like in a good way, as I would like to say. Minimal. Everything. Yeah. Very. Oh, that's. Great yeah. that I was trying to
1: think of. <laughs> Better but, um, than block.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the the minimalist approach of where everything that they do is so simple. And that's what people like. They don't like complexity. You know, if I'm having a galaxy phone, so what it has all these, you know, different things that I can do with it. How many times do you actually use the thing where you scroll with your eyes or whatever that may be? And Apple sells this simplicity in a great way to where. If I'm, no matter what age I am, since it's simple, I'm more inclined to buy that and the consumers flock to the Apple products and it doesn't matter what that price tag is. If it's an Apple product, I'm going to buy it. And two, this is a really, really weird one. Lamborghini and pretty much any other luxury car. And here's why I think Mm. that they're really good at marketing. Because they've realized that the people that buy their cars don't go on their phones and don't watch TV and don't go on YouTube or whatever it may be. And I cannot remember a time I, I looked this up and I was trying to find a commercial for Lamborghini or some other very like Rolls Royce, a very big luxury car brand. And there's none. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, well, why would that be? And now I'm like, you know, the whole full circle thing comes around. It's like, who, who is, what, person is buying a Lamborghini someone with a lot of money to be able to afford that upon the insurance and everything else that goes with it why would I spend the money on advertising on a commercial that that's not my target audience so what they see a cool car I'm not going to gain traction with that customer they're going to see it and be like man I wish I had one of those someday Mm -hmm. I'm going to shoot for you know the CEO that is able to afford that that's not going to be you know on their phone, ninety five percent of the time going through Instagram or whatever it may be, I'm targeting them because they can afford the car mm-hmm. and not the you know the everyday person that just dreams of it and that's why I think that the people it, it seems it seems like they're not very good at marketing, but in, in my mind at least that they have this way of doing it that makes a lot more sense because they understand their consumer basis more than some other
1: companies. I think mass advertising can tarnish the image of a high-end brand for sure. Um, So Ferrari is very similar to that. Uh, Like you would never find a Ferrari on the side of the road being towed by AAA because they have their own trucks that come along and hide the car, (laughs) you know, so nobody sees it essentially being taken away. And so... Um, these really high-end luxury brands, you know, there's so much marketing behind them, and a lot of it is about protecting that image. Uh, and and like if you if you buy some of these, buy I think sometimes you have to start by leasing the high-end car, right? Because they won't just sell you one of them. It's not it's not something that's done. They look to see if you are truly a member of that brand, if you can take care of the brand, if you, I know with Ferrari, they want you to go to Formula One and racing um, events and that sort of thing to sort of prove that you're part of that brand. Uh, But I know that it's to the point where sometimes they'll allow you to to lease the car, but it has to be within a certain uh, newness. Like they, they don't lease really old cars. And then you would trade that one for another new or newer one, and so you would only see newer versions of these luxury cars on the roads because they they you you just don't want to see a you know a twelve year old Ferrari or Lamborghini that's got dings on it or anything like that. It's not good for the image of the brand.
0: It's like what it's like Gucci, Hermes, you know, Burberry, mm. all those big designer brands because. The people that are buying it, and they understand their consumer. That you're gonna, if you buy a Gucci purse, you're probably gonna buy another one when it comes out, or the new thing that comes mm-hmm. out. And I think that's really interesting. But Professor Coupon, we're running out on time, so something I want to ask you before we go on with our day is, what is one piece of wisdom that you would like to pass on?
1: Oh my goodness! Um, I think. So it's funny, we, so, you know, we were chatting earlier about the office before the segment started and I always think back um, to one of the last episodes that I saw with my kids and how um, Andy Bernard talks about how I don't know if you remember this, but he talks about how when he was working in the office, he always thought about his Cornell friends because that's where he went to school. And if you went into his office, everything was Cornell. Like the poster, the photos, the trophies and all of that stuff. And then he ends up working at Cornell and then realizing that the whole time he's thinking about his friends in the office, he can't quite shake that. And he says something about like, you know, Um, wishing that uh, when we were in the good old days, like recognizing that we're in the good old days before we actually left them. And I've always thought about that since watching that particular episode. But also going back to what we're talking about today is that the world moves so quickly. There's so many things to pay attention to. Um, It's almost like an assault on the senses. Right where people are going to bed way too late because they're watching all the things that are happening right on their phones and so on. But to recognize there's so much beauty in this world we live in right now, and the people that we're surrounded by, and the things that we're thinking about, and the things that we're doing, to be mindful and recognize that like, n- pandemic is a horrible thing but to see the silver linings everywhere of what this means. Like probably a lot of people are spending a lot more time with people that they know, <laughs> they've grown up with than they had planned to. Well, what's the beauty in that? And you know, when we move on from this time period, you're gonna look back on this and say, "Wow, well, aspects of those, not everything, but aspects of those were the good old days. I spent dinners with my family that I did, hadn't anticipated. We had family game night, which I hadn't thought we'd be doing you got to record all these podcasts <laughs> that maybe you wouldn't have had as much time to do if you were commuting back and forth to campus every day. Um, you've probably learned things that you wouldn't have learned because of your location and the things you're doing every day. Um, so I just, I don't know. I, I think, and I remind myself of this all the time is to sort of treat the here and now as the good old days and, and to really remind yourself of that and to really enjoy what you're doing. Because I do think that college students in particular are very forward thinking. So there's always that sense of, well, when I'm done with my interviews, I can enjoy life. Or when I'm done with my exams, I can enjoy life. When I'm done with my interviews, I can enjoy life. When I finally get that job, I can enjoy life. But you know what happens is once you reach each of those spots, people don't actually enjoy life because (laughs) they're still thinking about all the things they need to do, right? And so... I would say just take that moment to just enjoy life and, and view it as these good old days.
0: Take the moment, enjoy life. That is a wrap for another episode of the Ronan Bell show. Professor Couplin, thank you so much for coming on the uh, show today. It was really awesome. If you are at Penn state, go take marketing through one. It's a great class. <laughs> Professor Cooplin's a teacher. I'm not just saying that to, you know, you no know, influence, influence anyone, but it's a great class. You should go take it. If you're here also guys, just want to say thank you for tuning in today really means a lot to me. I'm not going to ask you to like and subscribe or whatever, but go follow this podcast. If you are are interested keep listening up to the episodes, but that's pretty much all I got. I got to do some homework, drink another cup of coffee and get my day started. And other than that, guys have a great rest of your day and keep on keeping on.